Rough year for your favorite NFL team? Join me, Danny Heifetz, along with Danny Kelly, Ben Solak, and Craig Krolbeck on the Ringer NFL Draft Show, where we talk about all things NFL Draft, and more importantly, how to fix your mediocre team. Check out the Ringer NFL Draft Show every Tuesday and Thursday. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. It is Thursday, April 20th. A year ago today, the media analyst Richard Greenfield came on this show for an emergency pod to discuss something pretty shocking. Netflix, long the darling of the streaming video business and the stock market, had lost subscribers in the first quarter of 2022, the first time in a decade that that had happened. The stock tanked, a company that traded at $700 a share was down to 220, and its market cap dipped below 100 billion. Total disaster. What came to be known, at least by me, as the great Netflix correction brought the rest of Hollywood down into the toilet with it, with shares of Disney, Paramount, and the other big media companies dropping, investors wondering whether anyone would ever make real money in streaming. Netflix quickly hit the panic button, sorry, I believe the preferred term is pivoted, saying it would abandon its famous aversion to advertising and it would crack down on password sharing for the first time, focusing on profitability rather than growing subscribers. So here we are, a year later. The entire entertainment economy has shifted. Netflix has recovered somewhat to about $320 a share. Its co-founder, Reed Hastings, stepped down as co-CEO, and the company just revealed its first quarter 2023 numbers. And they're okay. Netflix is adding subscribers again, but only 1.75 million this quarter, less than analysts had hoped. Some of the growth metrics have slowed, but its free cash flow, which is basically a fancy term for money a company has left over after paying expenses, has grown significantly. The cheaper ad-supported tier is slower to catch on than Netflix had initially hoped, but thanks to those dual revenue streams, Netflix is making more money on those subscribers than it does on regular ad-free members, and that's a big deal. Plus, after being tested successfully in foreign markets, the password-sharing purge is finally coming to the U.S. Sorry, Craig. Though we still have no idea how many of those supposed 100 million freeloaders will shift to the paid plan. There's a lot to unpack at Netflix, and hovering over it all is the fact that even after the great correction and all the challenges, the platform is still delivering tons of hits, from the Night Agent to the Chris Rock special to Love is Blind, and that's just this quarter. So of course it only made sense to invite Rich Greenfield back to discuss whether Netflix has recovered this year, how the new co-CEOs Greg Peters and Ted Sarandos are doing, and what the new financial numbers mean for the future of the company and Hollywood as a whole. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Rich Greenfield, who's a partner at Lightshed Media and a prominent media analyst on all things streaming. I used to call you a Netflix cheerleader. Do you like that term, Netflix cheerleader? 
Well, I think it's sort of absurd because in the early days, we were sort of very skeptical of Netflix and really saw a lot of the challenges they had and have certainly become a big believer that they are the de facto winner. And I think the biggest thing we've learned over the last year is that everyone in the industry thought what Netflix did and even what Disney did in the early days, they made it look so easy. And I think the whole industry has learned streaming, direct-to-consumer streaming is a very, very hard business. So that's why you're here, because a year ago, you and I had a very testy conversation on this show when the great Netflix correction happened. The stock dropped significantly. Everybody hit the panic button. All of a sudden, Netflix was okay with advertising. They're going to crack down on passwords. They're going to rein in some of the spending. They're going to focus on this term, free cash flow, that somehow went away for 15 years. So now here we are a year later. How do you think Netflix has pivoted? Well, first, I want to just correct you. I don't think Netflix was ever not focused on free cash flow. I think in many ways, the reason they dove headfirst into advertising after not wanting to do it for so long and why they're cracking down on password sharing is that they were very focused on generating free cash flow. That was always the focus was to invest heavily, get to scale, and then literally gush cash. Okay, but for a decade, they took on debt to finance billions of dollars in content. And that's where we got the fire hose of Netflix content. They were not focused on profitability at that point. They were focused on building scale. And then everyone in the industry chased that. So you now have Netflix having gone over the hump or over the mountain or across the river, whatever analogy you want to use, and they are sitting pretty generating free cash flow. The others in the industry are still trucking up that hill trying to get there in streaming. They have other great businesses, although declining. And now here we are a year later after the correction. Netflix has instituted the ad tier. They have said they're about to do the password sharing crackdown in the U.S. They say successful in some other markets. Have they successfully remade this company? Well, revenue is still growing south of 10%. And I think the entire goal back last year when the correction collapsed, whatever you want to call it, the goal was to reaccelerate revenue growth north of 10%. So they're not there yet. So I think the answer to your question is certainly no, not there yet. There's really two things happening, right? The first big one, is that the whole rest of the industry, like leave Netflix aside for a second, the everybody but Netflix has realized how much harder this business is. Wall Street is no longer rewarding simply subgrowth and massive losses. And so whether you're Disney losing 4 billion, Peacock losing two and a half, Paramount Plus losing almost 2 billion, Warner Brothers Discovery where the HBO cash flow that was multi-billions for years has all but evaporated. Everyone is now rushing to improve profitability, scaling back overall marketing spend, cutting back on the amount of content. Like there is a- Selling it off to other bidders, doing things like that. Although Netflix is not really doing that yet, but the others are. But there is a massive correction for the rest of the industry going, God, we can't just lose billions. We don't have a clear plan to profitability um, by just spending and spending. So we're going to curtail spending. And so That is a huge positive for Netflix, right? Like less competition, slower competition from the peer group, less content, less marketing spend. I mean, just look around. You don't see the marketing spend from the peer group that you were seeing 12 and 18, 24 months ago. So that is clearly a nice tailwind as you move through and into 2024 for Netflix. But then the other piece is, look, 
advertising is clearly working. I mean, I think the most interesting thing that happened on the earnings release for Netflix this quarter is that they came out and they said that the advertising tier, which is only six ninety nine, so it's much cheaper. That you know, the low, the lowest tier before was nine ninety nine. They had a fifteen forty nine in the U.S. and then the nineteen ninety nine. What they disclosed was that the advertising tier total revenue per household member is actually greater than fifteen forty nine. Everyone right. was that is significant because that gets to the cannibalization question. Many people, including me have really questioned whether Netflix is going to be able to make money on these subscribers that many of whom I thought would switch from the $16 tier down to the $7 tier and just take ads and they would not be able to make up that revenue from advertising. And what they disclosed on the earnings call this week is that at least from Netflix's calculation, that is actually working and they are making more overall money from those subscribers that are now subject to the dual revenue stream than they are making from the traditional $15, $16 subscriber. So that's a pretty huge development. And if you look at, it wasn't just announcing that, it was also saying, hey, this is actually working so well. And it's still very early. There's not a lot of ad supported subs like this. So let's level set you're not even in the bottom of the first inning for this advertising product yet. Like right. this is still super early, very limited targeting. But they announced that they're going to do two streams per household and increase the quality up to 1080p HD quality. They're doing that because, as you just said, Matt, they're now comfortable with cannibalization. They don't care if you take the advertising. They're actually better off if you take the ad product than their standard 1549 plan. At these lower numbers, we, we don't know what, how it's going to scale. But did they say specifically what percentage of the ad tier subscribers are trading down and what percentage are new subscribers? They said there has been minimal cannibalization, meaning people dropping down. Mm -hmm. But but what's interesting, I think, more than anything else, is that advertising number, meaning the success they're having in ad revenue per household per month from their subscribers, is on a single stream. Remember, all the other Netflix plans, these are multi-stream products. You know, the fact that now they're going to add a second stream, so now you can have two people in a household streaming at the same time, that opens up even more advertising, obviously, opportunity. And so when you start to think about, I don't think it's even crazy that Netflix could generate substantially more than fifteen forty nine in revenue per month off this advertising tier. And then you start to go, okay, that gives you two big opportunities. One, you can start to raise the price of the ad-free faster because there's always an option to drop down to the $6.99 if you, you know, if you want something cheaper. So it gives you more pricing power. But B, it also shows Netflix, like there was a lot of debate of, hey, are they going to introduce a product that is sort of just, you know, are there going to be multiple ad tiers? Like, are there going to be like this sort of menu of choices of like, you'll have three Netflix ad-free and three Netflix ad with ads my guess is they're just going to be one ad plan and they're going to juice the revenue on a subscriber basis by making that ad product better and better over time and sort of being agnostic to whether you want ads or don't want ads. And I still think most people will not take ads. You start to get excited about where the advertising product is going. Obviously, password sharing has been successful in Latin America. So it's let's talk about that. successful in Canada. When they say it's successful in Latin America and Canada, what does that mean? What percentage of people are being told 
sorry, bro, you're not allowed to do this anymore and are engaging with the cheaper add-on $3 extra to add this person to your account? What percentage? Have they revealed that? All we know is that password sharing in Latin America was far more rampant than in the U.S., meaning if in the U.S., they had 100 million households that were using Netflix, but only 70-ish million paying, so sort of a 30% delta. In Latin America, it was a far greater percentage of households were password sharing. So is it 40, 45? I have no idea what the number is, but it was a meaningful number of households were sharing passwords in Latin America. What they've been basically have said is that they are now at a point where they have more subscribers and more revenue today than before they instituted password sharing. So did they lose some customers initially? A hundred percent. But enough of those subscribers signed up for additional accounts and or you don't have to get your own account. Somebody can just pay more for you to right. add on a second member or additional household. That number is net positive. And so what Wall but they Street, have not revealed the actual number. No, and they're not going to. There's no way they're going to give you that level of specificity. First of all, for competitive reasons, I don't think they're going to do that. But what Wall Street wanted to know and the reason why the stock rebounded from the initial sort of subscriber not being so pretty when they printed numbers for yeah, the quarter. They were down like 10% after the earnings and then they rebounded a bit. They're still a little down, but they did rebound a little. I mean, the stock's like basically where it was before. I mean, down a little bit. But this, you know, the stock, let's let's really go back in time a little bit because if we would have gone back a few months, the stock was sort of in the 280 range and investors that we were talking to were really seeing a lot of negativity up in Canada. They were seeing Twitter posts. They were seeing some credit card data of just big cancellations and people being pissed off, like literally just pissed off. Yeah, you're off, taking like, something away from them. There's a whole generation of people who believe that they are entitled to stay on their parents' Netflix password forever. You know, I think my partner, Brandon Ross, I think there must be five people, you know, utilizing his account, right? Like all of that's going to start to change in the US. The, what we learned, though, in Canada is that despite all the choppiness, that basically within two months, it's a net positive for the business. And that's what, when Wall Street started to digest that and to see that, sure, there's a near-term hiccup. There's no doubt. People's hiccup, first meaning reaction is, people bitching online. And they cancel. Some actually cancel. I mean, it's not yeah. intuitive. Like, hey, you're taking this away. I'm just going to cancel my entire account. But that's just human nature. People get upset. They don't understand it. They don't want to pay more and they cancel. And then you come out with a show they want to see. So you come out with Night Agent, right? You have something that people want to see, or my guess is in the US, I would be shocked if they didn't time this around Queen Charlotte. They've got the Bridgerton spinoff. It's probably going to be one of the biggest Netflix series this year. Good luck not watching it, right? Like you may be upset that you can't share your password anymore, but if you want to watch content, you have to sign up. I mean, this is still a content-driven business. Sure. And I think it's actually really encouraging for the whole industry, Matt, that, and Netflix is obviously leading the charge here, but as a starting this process of cramping down on password sharing is going to expand the streaming market for everybody in terms of total potential customers. Right, because everybody is going to do this. I mean, it's, they're already talking about it. And if it becomes a much more closed universe, you're going to have to subscribe. Now, the fear is obviously that you'll lose some of those people. You will lose the people who are testing it out and may ultimately become subscribers. Maybe they never enter your ecosystem. And that's the reason why 
Netflix used to be, you know, the Netflix Twitter feed once said love is sharing a password and that's gone. I still remember that infamous Richard Plepler interview, right? Mm -hmm. Where it was basically, you know, when he was running HBO. Yeah, where it was, you know, where it was basically like everyone sort of wanted passwords to be shared for a period of time because it was a way of almost marketing. Yeah, it was spreading your seed around and and taking the market share away from the other guy who you, you knew was allowing password sharing. So, but that those were the free spending days where it didn't matter if you were making money or not. And now you've got to make money. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. So you used to think on both password sharing and the advertising tier that in this past year, Netflix has made solid strides and those are going to be real difference makers. Look, Hulu probably generates nine-ish dollars in ad revenue per sub per month, Mm -hmm. somewhere around that level. But Hulu has been at it for a decade. The fact that Netflix, and yes, it's early. I'm sure some of these are sort of entry level, you know, you want to be part of the launch deal, just like sort of the launch deals at things like Peacock. So the ARPU or the the revenue you're getting, CPM you're getting on some of these ad deals may not be realistic at scale. But I'm telling you, Matt, every advertiser we talk to wants to be on Netflix. Like, think about the, the amount of time spent, the amount of content there, the type of reach that they have, it's been the missing link. The, the, the piece advertisers have wanted to be on for the last decade has been Netflix. They haven't had access. This is their dream. And that's a really good position for Netflix, which goes is. full circle to your original question of the only thing that's going to matter for Netflix stock is can they reaccelerate revenue growth double digits? Subs are secondary. Can they drive revenue growth? Because it's a combination of entering advertising, driving the ad revenue per sub, getting password sharing, getting people to pay for more people on their accounts. Like this is a complex set of moving pieces, but it's all about can they drive revenue at double digits? That's what investors are going to be keying on over the course of the next couple of quarters. If that gets back into the double digits as we move into the end of the year into next year, the stock has a lot of room to run. But this isn't exactly the greatest time to be pitching an ad service. I mean, the ad market is pretty depressed. And a lot of the numbers that we've seen on the trend lines are that if we're heading into a recession, some of these ad-driven services could really suffer. How much is the market and how much are you fearing that if we see an ad recession, we're, we're basically in an ad recession, if we see that turn into a real recession, that Netflix and the others are going to really suffer? I don't know. I mean, when you, when you look at sort of the demand to be on connected TVs, there is huge demand from advertisers 
to be part of the future. They want to lean into the future. They want to be part of connected TV. The biggest problem is there's just limited places to do it, right? I mean, you have YouTube, which we can debate whether that's premium or not. I think it is, but I think I'll still a lot of advertisers. It's still perceived as a cesspool. And you know, you never know. You never know if you're going to be next to, you know, someone vomiting green garbage up or, you know, anti-Semitic stuff, or you never know. Okay. If you leave off YouTube, which is the biggest player in the ad media, that really leaves you with Hulu, right? And then you get into the small players like Tubi and Pluto, but like, there is not a tremendous amount. You can obviously do Roku as well. There's well, not Disney like, and HBO Max now have ads as well. Yes, but also tiny businesses growing. But I think that's the opportunity here. Peacock, right? Like, don't forget about Peacock. We always forget about Peacock. Yes, but the ad market can be depressed. Yes. It's still a $65 billion plus market that they're looking to get to younger eyeballs than who is watching linear TV. And the only way to do that is through connected TV. And there just isn't that much overall inventory. So as Netflix creates more inventory with more ad-supported subs, I think there is plenty of growth and it's going to come at the expense of linear TV. This is going to hurt linear TV. The upfront is going to be ugly because everybody wants to be on connected TV, not on broadcast or cable networks anymore. A lot of these streamers are connected to linear media companies. And if you are Paramount Global or NBC Universal or Disney, you sell packages and you bundle linear with your streaming service. And Netflix doesn't have that option. Netflix is a one-stop shop. Doesn't that make it easier? You don't have to force somebody to buy the crap they don't want to buy. Well, they, can just they, buy they do want to buy. Want. I don't know. I, I Listen, I'm not an ad expert. But yeah, if you're Netflix, like what scares you? Does that scare you that you don't have that broad thing to offer your clients? What scares Netflix right now after this earnings call? I mean, look, I think the biggest, I mean, if I was sitting in Netflix shoes, certainly the strike doesn't scare me. If there's a writer's strike, I think that's actually a net positive for Netflix. Well, the, because... the rumor is that Netflix is among the studios that would actually like a strike because they can get rid of some of these onerous overall deals that they have been saddled with over the past few years. Um, them and Warner Brothers, especially those two have a lot of those deals. But Netflix also has this war chest of international and unscripted content that they can deploy if the strike goes longer than a few weeks. I don't think the strike really scares Netflix unless it goes more than a few months. So what are they afraid of? What is Netflix afraid of right now? I think the, the thing that is still challenging for Netflix, we've seen the hockey stick growth that they've experienced in Latin America, US and Canada, all of Europe. What's the piece that just isn't still scaling? Asia. If you look at Asia, they're still years after launch. I mean, I remember when Reed Hastings got up on stage and said, we're launching globally. They're still under 40 million subs in APAC. When does APAC just take off? That's the Asia region. Yeah. Correct. Asia broadly. Is Korea doing really well? Like, are there pockets? Japan is doing really well now. But Asia as a whole still being sub 40 million. Asia is a market that should be 100 million plus subscribers and it's sub 40. So I think that, I don't know if it scares, I think it's a frustration where it still has been slower than expected to turn into a monstrous business. Yeah, the dreams of this 400, 500 subscriber business, I think those have gone bye-bye. And that was a consequence of the correction a year ago. I don't think 400 is crazy though. I mean, I think there's still very much, to, to say that that's gone by the wayside, that's basically to say that Asia is never going to get to what I just said. 
it may take more time. And I think that timeline is why the stock is where it's at versus where it was a year ago. So the content spend, the amount of money that Netflix is spending on films and shows, that is of great interest to people in Hollywood. They said this week that they're standing pat at $17 billion this year, yet you look at the actual numbers and what their goals are for free cash flow this year. They're not raising prices. Yes, they could have a bump from the ad tier. It sort of... Uh, necess- oh, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Mm-hmm. They are raising price. I mean, password sharing crackdown is raising price. All right, but they're not raising, they're not raising prices of the tier that most people are on, the 1549 or whatever that middle we don't, tier We is. don't know what they're going to charge you, but let's just say they're charging all of these password shares another $7 a month or $6 a month to add another household member someplace else in the country, that is a pretty substantial price increase. So I just want to caution that, like, yes, they aren't raising price the typical way, but I think you should look at password sharing as a pretty meaningful price increase that's going to be pushed through during calendar Q2. Fair, 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 fair. But these freak cash flow goals they have. What is it? 3.5 billion for the year. That to me necessarily suggests that the content spend will come down a little bit. Do you see that? Or are you thinking that they are going to stay the course and just outspend everybody again? Look, the beauty of the Netflix model is that you got, I think you've gotten to a point. I don't want to say the efficient frontier, but like sort of that sort of efficient frontier. What does that mean? Well, like that you have enough content to support yourself. And do I think a little bit of that shifts from the U.S. to over, like, are they shifting to more spend overseas than they were spending in the U.S.? Are they probably taking some bigger bets in the U.S. and scaling back some of their smaller movie bets? Sure. I mean, there is definitely reallocation within the budget. Yeah, they just fired the smaller movie executives and said they're going to make fewer movies this year and try to put not more spend money. Less. Into, not spend less, you're right, but put their chips on bigger movies that have a bit more bang for their buck. Correct. And so what I'm saying is, I think they've realized that going from 17 billion to 20 billion of spend, look, maybe over time it reaccelerates. Certainly with revenue growth being anemic, they don't have the capacity to raise content spend. But I think you're also starting to hear from them that it doesn't have to go meaningfully above 17 billion in 24 or 25. That like, Remember, the thing to think about is the gap between Netflix and everybody else. Yeah, is everyone's, actually everyone's open about cutting back. I mean, Disney's Correct. about to lay off 15% of their entertainment staff. That will necessarily mean lower content output. So that the net result is Netflix is actually on a percentage basis spending more than others as you go forward over the next year, even as they hold spending flat. And so I think from that standpoint, they can continue to increase market share, grab subscribers, grow revenue, even with relatively flat content spend. And if you're holding content spend reasonably flat, up, down a little bit, and you're growing revenues, hopefully double digits, that is a, I mean, that gushes free cash flow. I mean, that's three and a half billion this year. It's going to be north of 5 billion next year, just mathematically, if you look at sort of the, the, the business model. While everyone else, remember, there's an important thing to think about, Matt, that no one talks about in our industry. All of these companies talk about their operating losses in streaming. I don't care whether it's Peacock or Disney. They don't report their free cash flow losses on streaming. They only report their operating losses. The thing that I wonder when we talk about Netflix versus these other companies and what the strategies are, does this mean that Netflix has already won? 
if Netflix is really the global all-purpose streamer and these other companies are debating where they can find victories and how they can tailor their services and downsize their ambition, has Netflix already won? Look, the mistake Reed Hastings made was he never assumed all of these companies would lose this much money. I truly believe he just never assumed there would be this much bloodletting at all of these companies, especially as their core legacy businesses struggled and, you know, basically entered secular decline. Now that they're all recognizing that they can't just do this, that this is so much harder, consumer acquisition, marketing, you know, retention, pricing, all of this is so much harder. I think that's scaling back. The definitive answer in terms of the question you're asking is, of course, they've won. Now, to what degree do they win and how big is the win? We're going to find out. But I don't think there's any doubt with everybody else pulling back. This is exactly what Ted and Greg, who are now co-CEOs, this is what they've been waiting for. Everyone else pulls back and they get to press ahead, put the accelerator down and move forward and take global market share. I mean, the other companies don't even want to be global, right? Like, I wouldn't be shocked if Disney sold Star TV over the next few years. Like, I think the global ambitions of legacy media are dropping very, very precipitously. All right. Well, I'm going to get you a little Netflix cheerleader outfit um, with a big red N on the front, and you can uh, continue your Netflix cheerleader dances for them. (laughs) But you have the numbers this time to back it up. We'll see where they are a year from now. I'm happy to keep revisiting, but I think investors feel a lot better today. I mean, I think the investor sentiment around the story is it sort of feels like this is, to your point on who's winning or have they won, I think investors sort of feel like this is something they have to own now because there is a clear leader winner in the space. And the big questions, the the bare case of password sharing wasn't going to work and advertising wasn't going to work and competition was too intense investors are just like the bear cases really haven't played out. And that's why I think the stock has bounced the way it has and why there's encouraging signs for 2024. All right, Rich Greenfield, we will make this an annual thing where you come back and give us your uh, Netflix state of the year, uh, one year, two year, five years after the crash. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, I imagine you are not an Evil Dead franchise fan. I'm just not a huge pure horror fan in general. <laughs> Ironic that a franchise called Evil Dead cannot be killed. Right. It uh, keeps coming back every few years. There's something. And there is a new Evil Dead movie this weekend called Evil Dead Rise. Sure. And listen, once again, this is a small budget horror film going up against nothing in the box office. So my guess is it's probably going to do great. I know. This was one of those movies that was supposed to be for HBO Max, but Warner Brothers is now putting them all in theaters. Warner says it's going to track to about 15 million. Most of the theaters think it's going to get to 20. So let's split the difference and say the over under is 17.5 million. I'll actually take the over on this. I don't mind betting on horror. Uh, There's not with Renfield flopping and some of the others out there not uh, being huge juggernauts. I'm going to say this thing will overperform and do okay. Obviously not Mario numbers. The numbers on Mario are just insane. They're expecting only a 40% or so drop again this weekend. That thing's going to hit a billion very soon. But uh, Evil Dead Rise, I'll take the over. Only $15 million budget, according to Wikipedia. So impressive. It's also 97 minutes. We're back, Matt. We are. I know. I know. You're going to go just to support that. 97 minutes. I'm going to go see Mario and Evil Dead Rise back to back in less time than Killers of the Flower Moon. Exactly. 
All right, quick call sheet today. I want to thank my guest, Rich Greenfield. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck. I want to thank Jesse Lopez for editing. And we will see you next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.